Join me, Professor RPG, as I sit down with friends, colleagues, and special guests as we reminisce and discuss role-playing games that left their mark on us. Expect to see all sorts, from Western style to Japanese and even tabletop. So stay a while and listen, and let us trigger those memories of tales long since completed. Relive that fantasy you hold dear, and come along with us, adventurer, on this quest into the past. Welcome to the RPG University. The year is 2021, and class is once again in session. Because it is. A man adorned with a scruffy beard and sipping from a mug of cold coffee sits in front of a microphone. The self-proclaimed Professor RPG, also known by the moniker Scott White, steals himself. Because today he has the privilege of speaking with the chief creative officer at Hyper RPG, a tech savant, an A-tier Spider-Man Peter Parker cosplayer, host of Colock 1991, and a fellow Sheba parent, the driver himself, Zach Lim Eubank. We pick things up here. How's it going, Zach? It's good. And for a second, I thought you were describing me as I was sipping out of my cold cup of coffee. And I was like, oh, wait, is my camera on? Wait, <laughs> did I leave my camera on? No. Hey, what's up? How's it going? Going well. Going well. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your hectic schedule to uh, talk some Kolak with me. Oh, definitely. Uh, I'm always down to talk about that world and all the weird stuff going on in it. But before we jump into that, you're a Shiba owner as well. I am. I have a black and tan. Oh, boy. So you understand the 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 awful uh, attitude uh, that the Shiba's the most precious, wonderful oh, creatures yeah. in the world, but little assholes all around. Just oh, yeah. Just little assholes. Sassy princesses. <laughs> yes. Uh, mine is the sassiest of princesses. Oh, uh, my God. I swear to God, Kaiju gets a little bit of dirt on him. He's like, oh, oh God. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> He's so uh, upset. <laughs> Yeah, this uh, like a week ago, Suki was running around and knocked into something and proceeded to do the Shiba scream. And yeah. then the the sympathetic, like kind of limp for like five minutes. And then it's like, OK, I'm just running and going to go back to running around and jumping on. Yep. things. It's like, oh, you little butthole. You guys yep. all worried for nothing. Yeah. But drama queens. But oh, yes, they are. Uh, love them. Such. Yeah. Such wonderful pets. I love their cheeks. I love the, <laughs> the the big puffy Shiba cheeks. Yep. Um, and how their ears twitch uh, and kind of rotate like a horse to look at what. Yeah, my favorite uh, thing in the world is when you say something to a Shiba and that Shiba, you see their ear turn towards you, so you know mm-hmm. they heard you and they know what you want, but they don't even look at you. They, yeah, <laughs> they're just like I acknowledge your request and I am moving on. <laughs> I deem it not worthy of my time. Exactly. I'm going to sleep some more. Um, but please pick up my tufts of Sheba fur uh, yep. that I have currently Forever. scattered everywhere. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, uh, well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, let, let's talk about some Kolok. Yeah. So uh, just as a prologue, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, for people that might not be familiar with you and your work, uh, who are you? In a very I, metaphysical uh, sense, yeah. Who is uh, Zach Lim Eubank? Well, um, that's a really tough uh, question <laughs> to answer because I contain multitudes, my friend. Um, many universe versions, many universe versions, and honestly, I, and I'm not totally um, just pulling your chain on that. I feel like I've lived many different lifetimes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I've had a lot of different jobs and experiences that have kind of led me to the path that I'm on right now. But at its heart, I would say I'm an art school nerd and uh, really love telling stories. And I run Hyper with uh, my wife, Malika Lim Eubank, who's also my boss. And um, we have a lot of fun just trying to constantly challenge ourselves to um, uplift each other and our company and push ourselves to make really cool content and give people a chance to have their voice heard who may not have been able to have their voice heard before. And that's why I don't, honestly, I'll tell you, I don't do many podcasts. I don't do many interviews because, um, you know, like if someone just wants to talk to me, I usually say no. If they want to talk about Kolok, uh, I'll get in trouble if I say no, because <laughs> I, my boss will, my, Malika will be like, you have to promote the show. That's part of being a showrunner. You have to promote it. Um, but often, you know, uh, we, we prefer to let other people speak and give other people opportunities to speak up. And, uh, cause I honestly feel like in this space, uh, I, you know, people like myself get heard from a lot and, uh, you know, but you already talked to Malika. Cause usually I'll just be like, you should talk to my <laughs> wife. She's the boss, but you already got it. You already talked to her. So I guess this will do. Yeah. Uh, Awesome, awesome individual as well. Super, you all are super creative, and I'm sorry if you got kind of shoehorned into uh, doing this by your boss. So I will try to make this as painless and enjoyable no, no, as no, I no. can for if you. If it's for Kolok, I'm all about it. Uh, I'm all about it. Excellent, excellent. But yeah, you have quite the resume. I mean, how's it? How does it feel to perhaps have played more Power Rangers than even Jason David Frank? Because you voiced. <laughs> Like the entire Time Force cast on your guys's yeah. um, Power Rangers series, Hyper tabletop Force, series, yeah. Hyper Force. You also were Mr. Ashford, Lord Zed, and Jem, Aisha, Merlin, yeah. Jen Scott's Resistance, and all these things. Um, not to mention all the other programs you produce and games you play. And yeah. I mean, it's the, really interesting. Yeah. I think, I honestly think because we work behind the scenes a lot, I don't mm -hmm. think a lot of people are even aware of how much my hand and hyper's hand has been involved in the development of tabletop RPGs on Twitch. Um, some of it purposely yeah. I, behind the scenes, working with Twitch to try to make the, make it more popular. Um, you know, I, uh, will never forget finding a denied pitch for critical role on a desk at geek and sundry and going to watch, <laughs> uh, Matt Mercer and friends play a game at his house and be like, yes, we should make this a Twitch show. Um, and not only did we kind of bring critical role to Twitch, uh, we brought, uh, we helped bring Ack Inc C team to Twitch. We brought power Rangers to Twitch. Um, and then ultimately Kolok. And we also, you know, produced D and D live this year. So it's like, we're always there. You just might not see us. I feel like we've always been a part of it and we've always been a part of shaping kind of where we want these stories to go on the platform, as well as many others that are often kind of like hidden in history in the background. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've never heard of this critical role thing you're talking about. No, so no, I, I mean, not. Power Rangers, <laughs> I'm all here for. But uh, yep, yep. <laughs> critical, uh, critical. What is it? Whatever. Again? Yeah, yeah critical rollers or do they like roll up on their rides or something yeah, like they're yeah. is it like i don't know literally the behemoth i might have to check it out that, <laughs> and and honestly i'm gonna be really honest with you though sometimes um not so much anymore when mm -hmm. i first branched off uh when i left geek and sundry to start hyper 
um, in some ways, having produced Critical Role when it started was a hindrance because a lot of people came to me being like, we want you to make the next Critical Role. And I kept trying to tell everyone that's silly. That's impossible. You can't do it. It will mm-hmm. never, ha-, you know, like that, that's lightning in a, in a barrel like that. That's, and, you know, it's like, you want to be proud of your accomplishments. You want to be like, heck yeah, I produced that thing. But I'm also like very, very aware that, you know, there will never be another critical role. And no. sometimes then you just kind of put that on the back of your resume. Cause you're like, here's the things that are actually accomplishable. Here's the other things we've done yeah. that you could do too, that are actually accomplishable. Uh, cause but that doesn't really happen much anymore. I think people have much more rounded their expectations. And when we get contacted now, nobody's asking to be that lightning in a bottle. They're much more aware of the limitations of the platform. Yeah. And I feel like nowadays, and we talked a bit about this before we started recording, is just how flooded the the market and kind of creator pool of tabletop RPGs oh, yeah. have gotten because of thanks in no smart small part really from you and you producing a critical role. So honestly, I would say the entire resurgence and explosion in popularity with tabletops in general, Dungeons and Dragons or Werewolf, everything is truly in no small part, thanks to what you and like you put together and you pitched. Mm -hmm. Um, And And, and I'll be I'm going to be like, you'll find I'm really bad at taking compliments. Oh, no, really, really bad. So I'm always going to find a way to deter from someone complimenting me like, well, actually, it was all these other things that did it. Mm. (laughs) But the we were at the right place, right time when we launched that, like Stranger Things um, was coming out, uh, you know, and Harmon Quest was doing really well. um, And it was just kind of like primed and ready. And when we pitched it to Twitch they were very generous and believed in our vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people at Twitch who I honestly would be like, my part was very small. Um, and, you know, all I did was kind of go through those original tech problems of doing something like this and, and being put to the fire of figuring out the tech technical aspects of how to make it work on Twitch. Um, but without Twitch's help, I, I would have not had mm-hmm. a successful show uh, and Critical Role wouldn't have had either. And to the the Critical Role cast as well. You know, like they're all such oh, yeah. talented performers and storytellers that they were just. And that's why ultimately Felicia and I really wanted to take a chance on that show and put all of our resources mm-hmm. behind promoting it. Because it was like, this is this is gold. So do this. We should definitely do this. Yeah. Um, but as a producer, it's like probably the most hands-off I've ever been of a project. And, you know, as a creative, you'll understand this too. Like that's not fun. Uh, Like it was really cool to be a part of, but I'm not there for like a successful, like to just be like, Oh, Mm -hmm. this thing's really great. It's more like, I want to make stuff. I want to make really cool stuff. And that, that team has their stuff so far together. And they're such a tight knit group, like outside of the original tech setup and getting everything ready to go. There wasn't really anything I could provide them. Yeah. And as a producer, I'm like, okay, well, I want to do something else. <laughs> I'm kind of bored. Yeah. Uh, let's make something else and something that we can really uh, 
put like all sorts of experimentation into and put my teeth to because I wasn't about to start being like, hey, your successful thing that is like launched you guys' careers into the stratosphere. Let me fuck with it. You know, yeah, (laughs) I wasn't going to do that. So but something that was like my own and our own like money, we could definitely fuck with and and experiment and and see how far we could push. Yeah. And that one of those cool new things that you could fuck with that you mentioned was Kolak 1991. Uh, Indeed. Yeah. So for the people, for individuals who might not be aware of what Kolak is, what what would you how could how do you describe Kolak to folks? Um, An experimental improvisational storytelling experience. That focuses on trauma, um, capitalism and (laughs) (laughs) and and dread uh and and a looming sense of dread and you know it is using the kids on bikes system um but i don't typically call it a live ttrpg or a live actual play or anything like that because it's the dice are there to move the story forward ultimately um and some people I know are really into certain things for the mechanics and that is not who we are. And that's not the show we're making. Um, I I have always been a person that sees TTRPGs as a vehicle for improvisational long form storytelling, uh, almost as if they were another school in the, in the world of improv outside of the long form UCBs or more character driven groundlings. You know, it's like these systems are like a great uh, storytelling tool to work out really deep character aspects and uh story developments in a group setting and that to me is like what Kolok is is a is is a big large experiment in tonal dread and um and and facing one's fears and traumas very cool very cool now i'm curious what was as i i have no doubt that it happened was like that it's gone through a lot of evolution from when you mm-hmm. first conceived it. But what was, if you remember, what was your like high level pitch for what would become Kolok? Um, it was, so we had just done a year of tin candles as a series. Mm-hmm. And, um, I really enjoyed doing that, but it was a bunch of, like three and four episode segments that led to a larger story. Cause you can't really do 10 candles as one long, you know, kind of thing. But I loved what 10 candles did as a system. Uh, the mechanics of 10 candles are actually extremely important to your storytelling and lead so much that I feel like it's the best system for quickly understanding what you're supposed to do as an actor or a player at the table. Um, mm-hmm. The system itself gives you the suspense and drama, just like Dread does to be like, OK, I'm in it. Let's go. And I had a lot of fun doing that, but I found myself feeling kind of like I wanted to throw my ring into really long form story building and building out a much bigger world, because one of the most fun aspects for me is world building and mm-hmm. getting to explore a world. And we had done that with Tin Candles and we built a world out. but um it was very like we never got to sit with these characters for more than three episodes at a time and uh and that kind of merged with you know tin candles was my experimentation with horror i wanted to experiment with absurdist surrealism Mm -hmm. and 
I was trying to think of the best way to do it. And I realized I could just extend the story of Tin Candles, uh, create a world build off of it. And my kind of pitch to Malika was, I want to try to make a TTRPG that makes you feel the way David Lynch makes you feel when you're watching one of his movies. And I want to try to capture that absurdist realism, uh, surrealism and figure out how to do that at the table. And it's been a huge challenge and one that I'm really always excited about. And we've had missteps and we've had things that I thought really worked and things that didn't really work, you know? And I think when you start with Kolok, um, I feel like, and I know some people really like the way the show starts, but you're going to find I'm a person that always shit talks my own past <laughs> things and is only looking forward to what's next. I don't mm -hmm. like to hang on the past in any way, shape or form. And I go back and watch that first episode and I'm like, man, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, I focused way too much on the on the uh, the dialogue and the narrative to create that surrealism. And I by the like mid to end of season two, I was much more comfortable with allowing certain other things to control that absurdist realism, uh, surrealism through aspects of. Um, oh, sorry about that. My Alexa oh, decided <laughs> to tell me someone's at the front door. Um, they wanted to chime in. That's all. Yep. Yep. That's a new round of tech being delivered. I have to set up later today. But um, so. I remember the the idea kind of came to me when we were riding a train from Los Angeles to Vancouver to do some. We stopped at PAX on the way and then hit back on the train and headed up to Vancouver to do some IRL filming. But while I was on the train, I just remember like going through the Pacific Northwest, looking out the window and being like, I really want to capture this vibe. I want to capture this tone. I want to make a show that feels like if David Lynch had done a TTRPG, mm -hmm. um, but put my own spin on that. And, you know, I think ultimately we've accomplished that goal. My misstep, I think, was trying way too hard in the first couple episodes to pull a hat trick on the audience of setting up a David Lynch style story. You mm -hmm. know, uh, the catalyst of a missing girl in a Pacific Northwest town, um, which in my head, I knew it was going to be a cliche setup, and I thought I had built a twist into that. Um, but what I wasn't prepared for is that my players, and as an improv uh, situation, not knowing where the story will go and what they latch onto, the cliches work for a reason. You know, mm -hmm. as my painting teacher in um, used to say in class, like sometimes a red barn works best because there's no better way to imagine a red barn than by giving them a red barn, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. so my players really latched on to that missing girl setup. And I had this whole twist and pull out of the rug to be like, haha, you thought it was going to be this kind of thing. But in fact, it's this dark surrealist otherworldly yeah. story, but they never wanted to let go of the missing girl. And that I learned a lot as a GM in that moment of like, you know, always trying to, um, uh, understand who your players are as people and what things they'll latch onto as, mm -hmm. uh, as players, because it might not be what you want as a GM at all. And the thing that you think is more interesting might not interest them in the slightest. And they're going to, they might latch onto the thing that you thought was going to be a sidestep and that you were just going to throw away <laughs> at the end of the first episode. And then that ends up becoming the entire first season because that's what they wanted to explore. Yeah, that is 
you touched on it so beautifully, and it's one of the aspects that I love probably the most out of tabletop RPGs and these sorts of experiences is how drastically different what you have planned or what you plan at the beginning ends up being. How Mm -hmm. a small character whose name you come up with out of the fly, the party grabs on and just run with. And that idea, and I was actually going to touch ask you about this. It's what was there a moment that you were expecting it to go one way, but the party kind of diverged and it went a completely different way. Yeah. It's that oh, yeah. realization in how magical those moments can be. Yeah. Now and, I see them as yeah. magical. And that moment I had a panic mm-hmm. attack, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was much more panicked in that moment. Um, Cause I was like it, with Kolok, it's a huge world that I had mm-hmm. built with all these like mysteries and secrets and episode one, two, I wasn't confident enough yet in that world being interesting enough to viewers. So when they started directing away from what I thought they were going to go towards, I was like, I don't have enough prepared. I've spent all this time preparing this other mystery and this other thing. Mm -hmm. And and I was freaking out. Um, (laughs) But you know, the longer you do it, the more confident you get that you can roll with it. And mm-hmm. uh, and then you ultimately find usually it's better for it. And that is the beauty to me of TTRPGs. You know, when when people try to act like stuff scripted. I usually take that as a compliment because I'm like, I, I am so honored that you think that I'm a good enough writer to have written out things mm-hmm. like this, because if you ask me to write this as a book, as a show, as a comic book or whatever like it wouldn't have these level of surprises and twists and turns and neat and and moments because you only get that from playing at a table with a bunch of really talented people who are adding their own elements to that story things that i could never think of you know like when people say that kind of stuff it's such a discredit to performers you know Uh, like Andre and Abria who bring things to the table when they start speaking and adding elements to a character, my own personal experiences could never think of, could never have come up with. And that that's the beauty of it. Um, I could never write something as good as what they bring to the table. And it's also a credit to when the whole scripted aspect it's being, and especially being played or played live it's being able to not reflect in your body language or your tone that what they're doing is totally not what you have had expected so you're adjusting on the fly yeah uh i'll that's why i play a character um i'm sure if there are people listening to this who've only seen kolok and they're like oh he sounds different um so i actually play a character as the gm and that was by design to make it easier for me to control tone because I knew if I wanted to do a surreal, absurdist horror kind of thing, I needed to control tone. And the things I learned from Tin Candles was when I'm playing myself, it's too easy for me to show what I'm thinking. It's too easy for me to react to what the players are doing, which can kill the tone, not just for me, but for the players and for the audience. So by playing a character who is monotoned, who has a very specific way of speaking with pauses those pauses become the moments where i'm internally freaking the fuck out (laughs) oh my god oh my god oh my god 
Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like creating a character as a GM that allows like that sets the stage and the tone for I'm in control. Of course, this is what I want you to do, you know, and just sitting back and looking at the players while inside my mind, I am freaking out and I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do next. And I will (laughs) let those pauses create tension for the players, for the audience. Sometimes I just won't say anything until the players say something mm-hmm. and and feel what I'm putting down by just staring at them. And it, it gives me a lot of leeway as a creator to um, allow those moments to happen. And I will say in terms of live moments and the whole thing with like scripted or planned or whatever, all that kind of stuff. Um, part of a lot of what defines me as a person is people telling me I can't do something Mm-hmm. Or if they doubt me and uh, which is my own chip on my shoulder that I have to deal with. But the a lot of Kolok is me being like, yes, this is live and I'm going to make you not I'm going to make you for step one be like no freaking way is this live and then realize, oh, my God, it has to be live. So the show is kind of built around playing these magic tricks uh, from a technical standpoint to surprise and make people go how the hell did they do that maybe it's pre-recorded and then immediately Mm -hmm. be like wait they just reacted to a thing i said in the chat or we just changed this aspect of the story oh wait this has to be live and creating that illusion of like it's all in the theater of the mind what's real and what's not and trying to blur that line for the viewer and make it clear that it's like you can only experience this magic if you watch the show live if you Mm -hmm. watch the show later on youtube there's it's not as special because there's an aspect to it of how the hell did they pull this off live? How did this happen? Yeah, and just holding on that thought for a moment, the technical marvels and creative solutions that you have come up with to enhance the already creepy and just trippy vibes of Kolak itself, it's so enhanced by what you were able to do. And it does make such a unique and compelling experience for the viewers and the chat. It's, it's mind blowing. And the pictures you've posted online on your Twitter of the crazy setup you have Mm -hmm. of the monitors and all the switches and how you you set it up in the, that you have the effects and all the cameras. It's it, that in and of itself, it's like, blows my mind like i always love seeing what like the new tech you guys are getting or like the videos that you did i want to say a few weeks ago where you showed all the camera all the screens in the back it's like yeah to figure how that all works out and then being able to do it live with all these effects to just further enhance the this production that you're already putting on and adjusting on the fly it's impressive on so many technical levels. Um, so bravo first for that. Oh, thanks. Um, um, I mean, there's a, there's a, for me, I have a lot of thoughts about that in terms of, uh, why I choose to do that. Um, and a lot of it is rooted in like the guilt I feel for, um, Okay, so my background is a painter, like I have a master's in classic Baroque fine art, uh, like oil painting. Mm -hmm. And um, I ran an art gallery for a while and just like. Getting someone to look at your painting 
uh, and to appreciate the art you made is nearly friggin' impossible. And I did get jaded for a while, but while I was running that art gallery, I also um, shifted it into a music venue and I, I primarily allowed freak folk artists to come through and and play their music. And and a lot of them had such drive and and uh, they were like traveling the country out of their Toyota Corollas and sleeping in their car. <laughs> and then you'd have these like two person bands that were using loop systems and uh, and visual things to create an overall experience. And and they inspired me so much. And when I got into video production, you know, I went through years of making stuff that nobody ever saw, nobody ever listened to. Um, and so I feel like putting out any kind of art and having anyone look at it, mm -hmm. ask questions and appreciate it is a privilege. And I'm just like mesmerized by it constantly because I went through so many years of just having someone even look at a painting for more than 10 seconds <laughs> is like asking too much. Yeah. And to have like entire threads on Reddit or a Wikipedia about our show of people trying to unlock the mysteries just makes me feel so uh, fortunate and happy. But I also feel like then really guilty that, you know, these shows are really expensive to make. Um, they take up a lot of time. You know, I'm, I'm asking somebody to sit down and spend three hours of their day per episode listening to my story. And I don't want to take advantage of that. I don't want to take that for granted. So if a freaking Cirque du Soleil performer can practice for months on end to perform one move, if a musician can practice nonstop to pull off the perfect arrangement, mm -hmm. um, I owe it to the audience to push myself to create something that is as practiced and, and, and like thought out as a musician or a playwright mm -hmm. or or a performer on a stage because that's what I'm doing I'm performing on a stage so the idea yes it's an improvisational show but to help me get around that guilt of feeling like I'm asking somebody to spend three hours of their day hanging out with me I'm not that fucking special and they should be doing other things with their time they should be doing their own creative work so if I'm going to ask you to take three hours out of your day to enjoy something I'm doing I want to give you my absolute best and I want to push myself yeah. to give you an experience that makes it worthy of your time because I do not think highly enough of myself that you should just be hanging out with me for three hours while I shoot the shit. That's uh, your time is worth more than that. And I want to, I want to give that to people. So I try to push myself as hard as I possibly can to be like, how do we do better? What's next? Mm -hmm. What's the next thing? Like, how do we push it even further? How do we keep elevating this thing that we're doing and make it worth people's time, money, energy, uh, emotional value like how do we make it worth it because uh, it, it should be it, it really should be if we're asking this much out of people to to just watch something that streams on twitch yeah you know it's got to be worth it for them yeah and i i get that's the same kind of mentality that i feel like when you explained and kind of went into why you do how you approach live content and making mm -hmm. sure that the audience is part of it, that you are bringing them in, that they are yeah. spending the, those hours for you and you want that, to give them that experience that is worth their precious, precious time. Um, I owe it to them. Yeah. I mean, people work hard for their money. You know, mm -hmm. like money is hard to come by, especially now. Um, and I always feel a little guilty when people give us money. And and we're an audience-driven channel, so I wrestle with this guilt constantly because we're pretty much funded by 
audience members. And there's this part of like knowing we wouldn't exist without it. And then knowing that people work hard for that money. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like I owe it to them to uh, make it a good experience and provide them with something that they can't get somewhere else. So they feel like that money, even if like that $5 came and went really quickly in terms of like how it interacted with the show, hopefully there's other things they can get out of it um, on the back end as a live viewer. So that's why we create this kind of metagame system where users on discord can role play as people in the world. And I can bring them into the story because again, I just, I want it to be worth it. I want it to like have value for the people who are paying and then for the people who can't afford to pay. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and who just want to be able to experience the art, you know, luckily they can because of all the people who do, um, support it. And, uh, I just want it to be as entertaining and enjoyable as possible. And, And I think that's the biggest thing that I try to remember when doing this stuff, we're providing entertainment. And I know that there are people who are like tabletop uh, purists and enthusiasts who um, don't like that it's kind of become entertainment. But I I like what I would tell them is like, that was always my intention. Yeah. I'm not trying to change your home game. I feel like if I'm putting something in front of you to watch, the creator in me owes it to you to make it entertaining, to make it entertainment and to provide you with this service, um, I'm, you know, like I'm, I don't want to change your home game, but if I'm going to stream it, it's got to be worth it. It's got to be worthy of mm-hmm. your time. It's got to be fun. It's got to be something memorable and that you can talk about the next day. Uh, otherwise, why the hell am I doing it? You know, yeah. it, it's too much work. It's too much effort. Why do it if it's not going to be all of those things? Yeah. Uh, touching on the audience interaction that you mentioned, allowing uh, players in the community and on the discord to role play and bring create their own kind of personas for Kolok. when was that decision made like how did you when you immediately. were immediately yeah. immediately so that was oh, yeah. from get-go that's how we were going to do it because malika and i don't think of bringing new shows mm-hmm. to our network without thinking of how is the audience a part of it because at the end of the day we're a live network and yeah. you know I know you and I talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but my background is also in film and commercial work and YouTube production and and things like that. And for my own mindset, if I am doing something live, I want it to be like it's meant to be live. And Mm -hmm. if we're doing it on Twitch... There's a lot of things that are great about Twitch. Absolutely amazing. But there's a lot of things that suck. So if I'm going to do it on Twitch instead of YouTube, how am I using Twitch? How am I using the audience on that platform in a way that can only be used in that way? And part of that is the live interaction. It's the aspect of having an open API that we can build tools off of to have immediate response. And as a storyteller, being able to put out things and have immediate feedback and and move and adapt Mm -hmm. is so exciting. And uh, the amount of things that happen in Coloc, the, uh, oh my, it would blow people's minds. The amount of things that happen because somebody in the chat room, because I have the chat open while I'm GMing and -hmm. somebody in the chat room will be like, I bet this is going to happen next. And then I go, that's a good idea. And I do it. Uh, all the fucking time (laughs) because 
uh, I want it to feel like that. Like you're in the chat room and you're like, oh man, I really wish this, you know, sometimes I'm like, that's yeah. stupid. I'm not going to do that. But then other times somebody will say something in the chat room, like that's genius. And I make it happen immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what a cool, but that's what's exciting. Exactly. And it's like, what a cool feeling for the person that randomly said that in chat mm-hmm. for them to get that satisfaction of knowing that it's like, holy crap, I was right. And it's like all these discussions will stem from that and how drastically the diff- story instantly changes. Well, that's that's what I wanted to bring trajectory. to this stuff. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to bring to that because some of my favorite shows that I've ever been to are improvisational shows in Los Angeles of really great performers where that feeling of when you're in the audience and they ask you for a word call out and then they build a scene around your word. I don't think that improv like that works really well on Twitch, but the the mentality and the aspect of what that is can be replicated. That feeling of like this story, this thing mm-hmm. wouldn't exist without my call out, without my feedback. And Malika says it best, like when we're trying to explain to people why we create content for Twitch versus YouTube, YouTube's a monologue, Twitch is a dialogue. And that should be at the head of every single aspect of what you're doing while producing. If you're not creating a dialogue, just do it on YouTube. If you're trying to talk at people, make that content for a platform that's better for talking at people. If you're wanting to have a conversation and a feedback loop, Twitch is a great platform for it. Wow, I love that. YouTube is a monologue, Twitch is a dialogue. What a great kind of surmise of the experience. And that's all Malika. I I got a creditor on that one. That's like, that's her CEO brain Mm -hmm. when we go into meetings and have to pitch why we use Twitch. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. What a easy, succinct ex- way to explain it without all sorts of technicalities and like anyone can understand that, like that mm-hmm. idea. That's put that on a shirt. That's what I'm going to say. Um, But leaning into I want to kind of get an idea of your creative process Uh, with you mentioned that you love lore building and mm-hmm. world building and fleshing all of that out. And I'm very much the same way. Like I'm fleshing out and building like for the D and D game I run, I've created the world, the timeline, everything like that. And I absolutely love it. But from your, I'm always interested to see what's your process. Like, what do you start off with? Like the, the initial story spark idea, or when you start doing lore, is it like timelines or the world or, um, I start with whatever my current dreads are like. I uh, especially for Kolok, because it was having to come from like. How do I say this in an improvisational story where I have to be able to react and create on the fly? I try to find ways to take whatever is most personal and present in my current life um, and, and bring that into the story so I can draw from it quickly and effortlessly. So like mm-hmm. season one is about tax issues. You know, like I was going through, I had a, like a, a problem with my taxes in 2019, uh, that like has been resolved now, which is great. Uh, but at that time they'd cleared out my bank account. There was an error in 2015 that somebody made that like just wiped me out. And that dread and fear of that bureaucratic, like aspect of how, Ever, you think that you have something, something that is yours, and it can just be taken from you with no warning, within an instant. 
and and the fight to get it back is so overwhelming and over your head that you feel like this tiny little pawn in a galactic game that you have no control over. I could bring that fear and anxiety to the table with, without any effort because that's what I was feeling. So I wanted to create a world that had, uh, you know, this symbolic representation of these aspects, you know, with the grotto and the faceless and the contract and pounds of flesh, those pounds of flesh was my bank account, you know, like that's Mm -hmm. how, so I can call on those emotions at any given time. So often when I start that world building, I think about what things am I currently feeling? What things am I currently exploring in my own mind? And how can I call on them in an instant? So I start with that. I start with the kind of like, And then I start creating, and this is the painter in me, I start creating symbolic representations of them. Okay, this is going to be this, and this emotion is going to be this, Mm -hmm. and this feeling is going to be tied with this thing, which is great for table talk, because I can create an entire character based on one emotion, and I can create Mm -hmm. an entire like town or place on one thing, and you make it work. You just improv around it. Um, So I start there, and then I'll start writing down the uh the other aspects of that world um the i like creating terms i uh that helps me a lot creating the language that you know the the broker and the pounds of flesh um phobos harmonia Mm -hmm. coming up with the words that will define that place because that starts making it more real in my mind so i usually start with those words like i have words for season three in terms of like an aspect and an avatar and things that are going to come into play. Mm -hmm. And I I like to do those before I start creating the story because it's just helping make the world more real in my mind. Yeah. And then because I'm a visual person, an extremely visual person and my brain works in pictures, um, I start creating in the imagery of the world, uh, whether it be through Pinterest boards or even like for season one, I made a, Mm -hmm. a, I made a map of the entire town before I ever started writing out the specifics of the town, because I had to be able to visualize it, had to be able to visualize the river that runs through the middle and the two tall towers that open the town and the valley that's surrounded by mountains on all sides and the crater lake at the end of it all. I needed to be able to see it. So in an instant, if I have to call upon it in an improv setting, I can, because I've built this, Mm -hmm. it's a real town in my head. Um, and the, and the very last thing I do, very last thing, is start writing out storylines. Um, and when I do that, I do it insanely loose. Yeah. So loose. Um, and it will usually more be motivations than actual stories. It'll be like, here's a character who wants this. Here's a character, an NPC, who that, what they want is this. And here's their history. Uh, and it's just building out those fabric pieces and the, and the world building to where if the players decide to go that direction, I know I've got a character in that direction that can now interact with this aspect of the story mm-hmm. instead of saying, here's a trajectory, which is the most challenging aspect, most challenging in terms of funding and budgeting for a show, because as a piece of entertainment um, and we ran into the, we ran into this problem with Power Rangers. You know, Mm -hmm. and like when you're trying to find budget for something, you got to be able to say how long it's going to run, how much it costs per episode. Um, And it's it's a crazy expensive show. It's so expensive with how much time and energy and music, custom music and art and everything else we put into it. 
So we we like for season three had to be like, OK, we can if even if we can find the money, we can only do 20 episodes because season two and season one nearly bankrupted us as a company. It just costs so much to make. Mm-hmm. And we're like, OK, we have to stop at 20. And that's really hard for me because now I'm like, well, I have to have an arc then. And I don't like creating arcs because then I'm pre-writing where I want the story to go. And that mm-hmm. doesn't feel true to what Kolok is, which is finding the mystery and just seeing where it leads. And I think that can like cause challenges as a storyteller for sure. Um, yeah. Especially when I consider it entertainment, if it was a home game, less of a problem, but like right. three quarters into season two of Kolok, it does meander and there's storylines that the players didn't pick back up on. So they don't go anywhere. Um, you know, they never really wanted to be as interested in how the pounds of flesh were being ground down into a drug that was being sold uh, to teenagers. And like that didn't interest the players as much as some of the personal character stuff. So we never got to resolve that storyline. It just stops uh, Mm because it wasn't as interesting to them. So then we have this like couple of episodes that were exploring it and setting it up that we never get to finalize and see through because ultimately I'm not writing with the players. I'm not sitting them down and saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing. You know, like it's more like, hey, here's some emotional beats I want to hit tonight. Can you guys hit them? Yeah, great. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. Here, if I do that, like we do some tricks on the show where I'll say, if you see this thing, make this happen. Like when we did dreams, um, I had a tablet in front of me and I told them before the show, if you see this word on the tablet, when you hear the word, repeat it. So that's how we got the whole them always repeating the words that end up saying together our bond can mm-hmm. break, the, break the black rock. And then as a GM, I'm trying to like think of ways to insert the word black and rock and all those kinds of things <laughs> into dialogue, knowing the sentence I want to spell. But for them, I just tell them, repeat whatever words on that screen. But that works really well for one offs for long form storytelling. Um, creating the story can be really, really tough when you have a certain amount of money and a certain set amount of episodes uh it's really tough like i'm really struggling with it right now because i don't want to write an arc because two episodes in it could be like well that doesn't work uh they don't care and they want to go a different direction and i want to be ready for that so um I, i just focus mainly on the world building and the music uh i guess i should bring that up the other big aspect is the music alex and i work together mm-hmm. on Um, you know, he makes, I give him what I totally want and the emotions I want. And once I have that, the world building is so much easier because I'm, I can bounce the feeling of the world off of the music he's creating. Yeah. And music is such a, uh, important part of setting ambiance and kind of the tone in general. Um, but touching on, I can't even imagine trying to, it's an interesting restriction like force restriction is like you have we can like you mentioned you can only do 20 episodes but with a medium that can vary and diverge and you could take if you think okay they're going to stop in this one place for maybe a few minutes i'll have a i might have a couple story beats or things they might be able to find in here but it could easily spawn off into 45 minutes Mm -hmm. or longer totally how do you plan around a complete unknown. And then when you mix in and bring in audience interaction and what potential paths that could lead down. I mean, it's, I, I have to find a way to, to be excited by it 
and and mm-hmm. perceive it as exciting. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie. I have a lot of anxiety. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have a lot of anxiety. I am an anxious mess before the show. And often after the show, I just sink into the chair, my head staring up at the ceiling, being like, how the fuck do I move forward? And I spend the entire next week thinking of how do I move forward? Mm-hmm. It, uh, I'm not going to act like I have answers other than just rolling with it, yeah. just rolling with it and and just being on the tip of my toes always and trying to adapt, 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 adapt. But uh, I'm an anxious, anxious, absolute wreck before the mm-hmm. show because it's really hard. <laughs> it's like it's just really yeah. hard to plan out these like big um, special effects set pieces. Like there's times we planned out set pieces that we didn't get to use because the players didn't go that direction. And I couldn't in my mind in that improvisational moment, come up with a way to tie it in. Yeah. So we save it and we bring it in a couple episodes later or something. You know, the, if there's ever an episode where you're like, wait, there was no magic trick this week. It's because I had it. And then we didn't get to use it because things didn't go the direction I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the most nerve wracking aspects because I'll spend part of the reason the show's on a Monday is because as as like creative officer and tech director here, like I couldn't do it any other day of the week. I have to spend the entire weekend doing almost a 48 hour sprint to Monday mm-hmm. to, to get everything ready. And so when stuff doesn't get used, like, oh, God, it's so upsetting because uh, I, I spend my whole weekend um prepping it getting it ready yeah and going back to doing what's best for the story and kind of the production itself it's it's one of those things it's like it sucks but the the overall experience for both the players and chat if you try and force it to go somewhere where it's not naturally flowing yeah you're, and I've yeah, done that and it, you're right. It diminishes it's, yeah, it's good. kind of the experience that people get. And yeah, you can use your thing, but it's like at, at the end of the day, it's like, is it is the experience better off for it? Yeah, I mean, as I, much as it hurts, I've definitely done that. I've yeah. done it. I mean, I think episode one of season one has that problem. Uh, I was too nervous. I wasn't confident enough yet in my ability to. Mm-hmm. pull anything from that world together and i i railroaded them a couple times that when i go back i'm like ah man i knew better yeah and and for new game masters and stuff it, and this can be on a on a lower budget scale and everything but running games you will have those story beats you will have those big boss encounter or those big enemy encounters that you're like i spent like all week preparing for him i can't wait and then they go a completely different way and it it's heartbreaking. But what to your point, Zach, and it's something that comes from just experience being a game master, being a player and, and whatnot. It's let it lie. Let the story tell itself and go with it. It will be better off for it in the end. And you yeah. you'll always have that encounter or in your case, like the effects you can pro, uh, retool later on if need be and have it in your back pocket. But yeah. that you run into more issues and your players will respond. N- not, I don't want to say poorly because that's not necessarily the case, but they'll, they will appreciate not being forced down the road, especially in games where it's all about what the players are doing, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, and it's, it's hard for me. Sometimes I get asked a lot to share GM tips and it's hard for me sometimes to give them because I feel like I'm not a GM. Like mm-hmm. I, 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 like I honestly feel sometimes that like I'm not one because I would be an awful person to play a home game with. Uh, you know, I don't think I would be providing people in a home game experience with a positive uh, atmosphere and environment. You know, I'm making entertainment and I see it as entertainment. And from my cast, I'm paying them to be talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have expectations from them as well. And I push them. And it's just like they're they're You're paid talent. I want you to be here at a certain time, act a certain way, perform a certain way. And, you know, like I have expectations there. And, you know. I, uh, I recognize that what we're doing is very different and it's, it's more like a stage play than a home TTRPG game. You know, it's, it's more closely resembles that. Mm -hmm. And yes, I've, I've GM'd other shows and I've GM'd other things, uh, you know, but I've never GM'd a home game. I've GM'd con games. I've done Mm -hmm. stuff at cons, but even then I understand that if you're signing up to be a player for me at a con, you're a fan of what I do and you're expecting a similar kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why you signed up. So, you know, I've never GM'd a home game. In fact, I've never even played in a home game. I didn't grow up around enough people to have a group. <laughs> there weren't enough people <laughs> where we lived to have, uh, to have role-playing games. There just weren't, um, lived in the sticks. And then by the time I discovered the, the games, I immediately was like, I want to produce them. I want to like mm-hmm. make them stories. So I have very little experience in creating positive environments for a home game. Uh, and I always tell people like, I, ex- I understand how different they are. Um, and what we're doing is not that I don't pretend that it is. I don't even try to act like it is. It's very different. And I, I would be an awful GM for somebody's <laughs> home game. I would not be providing them with the fun that they they probably want, which is just hanging out with friends and being chill. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things not necessarily being fun and whatnot, um, season three, uh, you're deep in preparation. It's getting around to air in a little while. Um I mean, season two ended, it aired right before everything got locked down. So this past year and a half has been absolutely crap with everything going on. How has the experience and everything from the past year and a half kind of impacted what you had in mind, I guess, for season three? Or has have you taken much from what has happened into I mean, that's, what's... That's what it is. I mean, yeah. it's... Again, uh, for me to do this in an improvisational way, I have to be whatever is closest to what's on my mind mm-hmm. and whatever is the closest emotionally available. And we changed what season three was going to be 100% based on the pandemic mm-hmm. and living in solitude. Um, there, it was going to go a very different direction. I mean, we had to stop the show because of the pandemic mid season two, not mid, we were coming mm-hmm. towards the end, but I had a full other story arc that was going to finish out and, uh, we never got to finish it. And instead of coming back and finishing it, I can't pretend that the elephant in the room that was 2020 didn't happen. It did. Yeah. We're still feeling the results of it. It's still happening. 
Um, so season three is 100% about that trauma that we're not dealing with. So the new season is going to be exploring through new cast members and old cast members, the differences in how we experience trauma and our relation to that trauma at what age, um, what mindset and how we bury it and how we move on from it. And uh, it will definitely be an exercise of exploring the emotions we felt coming out of 2020. Um, it'll be cathartic for me and some of the players. It might be really hard for some people who watch. Um, it will not be as teenagers getting into hijinks as some of season one was. And it will mm -hmm. be much more the existential dread of late season two. Um, for one, we move forward 30 years in time and they're all adults now and they're having mm -hmm. to deal with the traumas of their childhood that we all saw. Like, that's the fun part is like, we saw their traumas. We experienced it with them 30 mm -hmm. years later. Do they choose to acknowledge that run from it, hide from it, remember it, forget it? You know, like how do they deal with this really messed up stuff that happened to them when they were kids? Yeah. Was it a decision because of the pandemic and just how the years laid that you jumped specifically to 2021? That was uh, serendipitous. The dice decided that. Um, there's an episode in season two where one of the characters uh, is teleported forward in time to escape harm. And we, when making that role, I asked Mika um, to roll a die. And in my head, I was like, well, if it's one, you know, I don't want it to just be a couple of years, you know, it mm -hmm. should be. So I told her as she was rolling at a zero, you know, to whatever you roll and she rolled a three. And then there was that kind of like quick moment where it was August 21st, 1991 in story when this happened. So then we were all sitting there thinking we're like three 30. 2021 at the time it was 2020 but all of us mm -hmm. were thinking the same thing like when we get to 2021 we got to explore this um so that's the reason we're jumping to 2021 is there's a catalyst uh in story there's an in-world catalyst that makes it make sense that you should be here now the story should pick up here how yeah serendipitous of that yeah and, and oh, with the dice the month <laughs> i'll i'll hail the dice um, but how interesting. Um, now I'm curious, um, you have had so many amazing guests on Colock. You've had mm -hmm. Xavier Woods, Felicia Gil, don't fuck me, Ramirez, Abrea as a playable cast member, or, uh, as a main cast member in season two, Andre in season one, all so many, what would, or who would be your dream guest to get? Like who would be your big get that you dream about? maybe being able to bring into your world of Kolak one day? Um, man, I've got a lot. Uh, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, uh, even though it's really on the nose, <laughs> <laughs> Laura, uh, yeah, Laura Dern, uh, gosh. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of older actors who, mm -hmm. <laughs> who aren't really big into social media live like content uh, and would probably feel so out of touch and out of place at that table. Um, but those are the ones that interest me the most. Um, I don't know. I kind of play it by ear. You know, I treat the guest spots very similar to um, the story itself, where it's just like mm -hmm. if somebody I hear through the wind that somebody would like to be a guest on the show. Uh, or is interested in it, then I, I dream up 
how they would fit in. Um, so I don't usually have expectations of like who I would love to see on the show. It's more like, oh, so-and-so wants to do it. Um, man, I could, yeah, I got a perfect, I got, I got the perfect thing for them. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I don't think about it too much. I really, mm-hmm. really, really don't in terms of <laughs> who would be the perfect cast member, uh, or like guest. I, it's usually just fly by the seat of our pants in that, mm-hmm. in that regard. I should probably think about it more because I'll, I'll never know if it's accomplishable unless I try. So I should probably think about that more of who would be a really good person and then figure out how to make it happen. I mean, Jordan Peele, you know, like that would be oh, yeah. insane. Uh, it would be absolutely insane. Um, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, that those would be Jordan uh, McLaughlin would be fantastic. Fit, fit, fit right in. That's oh, for sure. I'm going to I'm going to manifest this one because I keep trying to make it happen. But Heather mm-hmm. Ann Campbell um, is somebody I really want to find a role for. Uh, she is a improviser in Los Angeles that uh, she was on Whose Line Is It Anyway? And uh, she used to be a writer for Saturday Night Live. And I got I was very fortunate to work with her uh, and her her troupe, the uh, the Midnight Show. Mm-hmm. And I find her to be one of the most brilliant improvisational performers I've ever seen in my life. Um, and there's a darkness to her that is fascinating, just fascinating. And I want to find a way to take her improv prowess that's just unmatched and put it into this dark world where I think she could really, really thrive. Um, yeah, I, I would love love to have mm-hmm. her involved in some way. And we, we've we talked about it, but her schedule is really hard to sync up and I, I would love to figure it out. Yeah, I'm going to put this into the universes as well. I would love to see like a Jillian Anderson appearance mm. as a nondescript Agent Scully. Totally. <laughs> totally. Totally. Legally distinct, agent, yep. not Agent Scully. Just an FBI Department C agent here. Yep. Agent S. You know, um, but like with kind of mentioning like the universes and time in Kolak deals with alternate universes and mm-hmm. time jump and timelines and time like going time travel is someone who also fleshes out lore and is building worlds and whatnot. How big is your Google Doc? Oh, <laughs> like I have, how do you I have organize? <laughs> I have a folder that's like a hundred pages. I'm not even actually. I have yep. a bind. I have a uh, Agent Buckets uh, FBI box document box um, that is filled with <laughs> material. Um, I have notebooks. Uh, I have a giant folder filled with material and a ton of Google Docs as well online. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot, lot, but I never really recall on that stuff in the moment. I just mm-hmm. try to like every couple months skim through it again to keep my mind fresh and to keep it all on my head. Because as I said, I'm a, I'm a visual learner 100% mm-hmm. and I, I live in imaginary worlds in my mind. So I just try to keep those imaginary worlds as real as possible and think about them all the time. So I can just call on it and I can just be ready to at a turn of a dime or a roll of a die move a different direction within that world and bring in a character or emotion that I need to. Um, I I'm actually really bad at reading. I'm very dyslexic. So I just try to live in those worlds in my head because if I start trying to read something, I'm, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to get it backwards and question myself. Mm -hmm. You guys put together a bunch of props. 
mm-hmm. and documents. Like, how much time do you think like you've spent putting together like the documents and things that you use uh, in game? I mean, we start the Tuesday after a show and go right up until the next show on a Monday. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of just nonstop making stuff and just trying to live in that world. And uh, the the biggest challenge is having that kind of weekly timeline of like, okay, we have to build something in a week and we have all these other shows we're producing and these other clients. So Colock has to just be, when we're running it, the most important thing that's happening in our personal lives because all of our personal time gets taken up mm-hmm. making all these things and, and uh, getting everything ready. It, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's an ungodly amount of hours um yeah. and time and energy i mean the 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 struggle i'll just be very open and honest the struggle we're having right now with getting season three up is like i said season one and two nearly tanked our company it was a very expensive show to make and it takes away so much of my time and i'm an incredibly valuable resource for the company mm-hmm. and for our other clients so when you take me off those projects it's costing us more money in other ways we have to hire other people to do other things that usually, you know, my one myself and the way I've trained myself could do two of these jobs and we'd have to have two people. We have to hire two people mm-hmm. to come in to do it. So it, it's just so expensive and we budgeted out the bare minimum to do season three and it's $500,000 for 20 episodes. So we've been hunting, you know, we've been out hunting for investors. We've been hunting for financial, uh, like, uh, backers or co-producers for the project. And, you know, we had a couple people that were really interested, uh, that we thought we were going to be able to launch by now. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the money just didn't come through the way they thought or the way we thought, and we're still hunting mm-hmm. and it's extremely difficult, but you know, the, the joy of it being our company and our IP that we own, we don't have to sacrifice and just be like, well, let's just do it. Let's just do it. And then not yeah. be like, we're only going to do it if we can be happy with what we're, what we're making. And if we can be happy with the product we're putting out, cause that's the only reason we do it. Like it's, it's to push yeah. ourselves and challenge ourselves. You know, it's not like, it's not a home game. We have no loyalty or reason to do it other yeah. than to just do it, make it happen. And, uh, you don't have to settle. We don't, we don't, we, we gotta do it right. Yep. Um, now years from now, after uh, Kolak has ended or moved on or whatever, what do you want the lasting kind of, not message, but the legend, not legend, I'm trying to think of the word. I can't think of it, but the legacy. The, hit, the legacy. There we yeah. go. Words. What do you want the legacy of Kolak to be? Like what's... That people what, are copying it. That people are trying to recreate or find their own magic and push the format Mm -hmm. you know because i I like that's what i want the same way when we brought critical role to twitch and came up with the way it was going to look and the way it was going to sound and work everybody started copying because it came really popular it's not that i want people to copy i want people to realize you don't have to do it that way Mm -hmm. i want the legacy to be showing people that storytelling is at its heart, why people are paying attention to these things. And there are many different ways you can tell a story. There is no right or wrong way if the story is engaging and captivating to people. And I want to give people the confidence and the, um, we could take that risk 
And it, believe me, that's like most of my career is us being the first ones to take the risk. And I'm fine with falling on that sword. I have that privilege as a middle-aged white dude. Like I, I have that privilege that I can fall and get back up with, you know, so let us do it. Let us fall. Let us keep trying and experimenting and then hopefully give people the confidence and know how to be like, okay, here's what they did. And here's where it didn't work. And here's where it did work mm-hmm. and, and do it even better. I want to see the next version from somebody else doing it even better um, and really pushing the format and experimenting and trying stuff that we helped inspire. That's, that's what I want the legacy to be just to show people they can um, mm-hmm. that you don't have to do the same thing everyone else is doing. Cause you think that's how it should be done. It's what is true to your story. What's the story you want to tell and tell that story. It's a good one. Break the mold. Yeah, I like it. Ultimately. Um, now, I, I do apologize. I saved the most kind of decisive and potentially difficult question for the end. Mm-hmm. Um, with Kolok in the multiple universes, um, is there a universe in Kolok that thinks a hot dog is a sandwich? Haha. <laughs> no, because all of the multiple universes got destroyed three quarters of the way through season two when Billy Baker destroyed all multiverses. So, no. There is not. <laughs> so the the remaining one does not believe the, hot dog is a sandwich. The Kolok Prime, the multi, the 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 one true universe right now that we know of. No. Do they believe a hot dog is a taco, or is that will that be explored in an upcoming season? I know it's it's if very. Mallory, if Mallory Jenkins was still alive to answer that question, he would say that it is. You have it here first, folks. Hot dogs could be tacos. We don't know, but uh, but yes, thank you so much, Zach, for uh, coming and hanging out with me today. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. This is great. It's, uh, thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, and we touched on a little like this. People can look forward to Kolak season three coming soon. But until then, where can people find you online or the other Kolok goodness to get all caught up? What do you have cooking? Plug away. I mean, just follow Hyper. We're always making cool stuff. And even if it's not Kolok, the same mentality we have for Kolok, we have for everything else. We're constantly pushing. Um, you know, I think, in fact, I can say just today we launched a new IP network for AMC networks called Fear HQ, and we'll be doing a lot of IRL horror experiments on that network, you know? So like we're always, it, even though Kolok might not be here right now, you can follow Hyper RPG on Twitter, Twitch, wherever, and the many projects that we have other places where we're always doing similar things of really trying to push the format and see what we can accomplish. Definitely, definitely. And make sure you join Hyper's Discord so you can make your own character. Oh, yeah. So you're ready in time for Skolak Season 3 and play yourself and join in with the rest of the community. But, everybody, that is going to do it for this episode of RPG University. I want to thank each and every one of you who's listened today. Be sure to rate and review us on your preferred podcast service, as I'd really appreciate it. If you have an RPG you would like us to feature on an episode or a topic you'd like us to cover, tweet at underscore RPG University with the hashtag RPGU with your suggestion, or you can share your own favorite RPGs directly with me on Twitter at SolidSnake120. As always, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, be kind to one another class dismissed.